Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. As regular listeners know, we do our best on this podcast to not look away from the pain that patriarchy causes. In the past, this has meant discussing the hurtful ways that patriarchy erases history, the ways it diminishes women, the ways it limits possibilities for men and boys. And on several occasions, this has meant listening to difficult stories of domestic abuse. On today's episode, we'll be joined by an anonymous contributor who trusts us with another of these difficult stories. So why do we continue to return to this painful topic? Well, it's because this is a historical project which seeks to document patriarchy's history and present-day reality accurately, and this violence unfortunately remains a very real part of that reality. Men's violence against women cuts across all races and ethnicities, all nationalities, all religions, all socioeconomic situations. We share these stories because the alternative would be to ignore them or to hide them, and they are much too ignored and too hidden already. With all that said, we do understand that the subject of abuse can be a challenging one to listen to, and this segment will contain descriptions of domestic and sexual violence. So I encourage everyone listening to please take care of yourselves as you know best. If you are six months pregnant with your second child, naked and locked in a hotel bathroom, and you had just been raped by your own husband, what would you do? Would you call the police? Would you worry about how to get your first child, just two years old, out of there? Let me tell you what I did. It might surprise you. I'll start from the beginning of the story. I'm not able to share my name with you today, but I use she, her pronouns. I grew up in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints also known as the Mormon Church. Recently, I learned the term Orthodox Mormons, and that's who my family were. My parents read the scriptures to my siblings and me in the mornings and had family home evening every Monday night, which was a family meeting with a religious theme, usually followed by ice cream. My dad taught a youth Sunday school class and was my friend's favorite teacher. He later became the ward mission leader, the person who coordinated the local church efforts to find people interested in joining the church. We were that family. My dad was a large, strong man with wavy, dark hair. His stories captivated the entire room. He loved fixing cars and motorcycles. He drove to the house of a boy whose dad didn't go to church and brought him to our youth activities. He filmed us on Christmas morning, showing the camera what Santa had brought us. He was childlike, too. Sometimes I would find him sitting in front of the computer watching train videos on YouTube. I loved him very much but I was also afraid of him. My father controlled the family with fear and authority as the patriarch in our home. When he and my mother were first married, he pinned her to the ground with his knees on her arms and put his hands around her neck just to show her, I could kill you. He left her on the side of the road in the middle of the desert when she was nine months pregnant. He would go from either ignoring her for days or weeks to yelling at her, but then act completely normal if someone came over to the house for a visit. He would use the belt on us as kids when we got in trouble, up until we could grab it away from him. My dad would tell us that his mother had used the belt on him until he could grab it away from her. As adults, my siblings found out that his mother, our grandmother, was beaten by her father too. My dad would come up behind me when I was washing the dishes and kiss my neck or bite my ear. He would have me sit on his lap while he was wearing his robe when I was a teenager. This is called covert sexual abuse. There was no personal space, and he viewed me as his property. I would lock my door as a child out of fear he would come into my room and sexually abuse me. He lived a secret life with a girlfriend for most of his life. He used drugs and alcohol. My mom was kind, smart, who I watched shrink into a shell of who she was over the course of my adolescence. My parents' group of friends were upper middle class, even wealthy, and were also Mormon. The men made every decision and told the women what to do. The men liked it when, as a preteen, I massaged their shoulders while their wives giggled and said I was so cute. I liked the attention because I knew my dad liked it. All I wanted was for him to be proud of me and love me. Growing up, I took part in all the rituals prescribed by my church. 
One of these rituals was a baptism ordinance in the Mormon temple, which is more sacred than a regular church building. Before youth can participate, they have to meet with the bishop of the congregation, which is like a pastor. In our church, however, bishops are untrained volunteer members of the congregation who only serve part-time. Only men can serve as bishops because only men can be ordained to the priesthood. When I was 15 years old, the bishop called me into his office alone. Our youth group was scheduled to make a Saturday trip to the temple to perform these baptisms, which we considered holy but fairly routine. In a matter-of-fact interview, the bishop asked me if I had committed any sins that I needed to repent of before I could enter the temple that Saturday. I'm sure he had this exact exchange with every other teenager in my congregation leading up to this youth activity. I wasn't allowed to date until I was 16, so at the time I had a secret boyfriend. I had been told that when I died, the bishop would be sitting next to God when I was judged, so I couldn't hide anything from him. So I told the bishop that a boy and I had touched each other's private parts over our clothes. The bishop was very concerned and asked detailed follow-up questions like, Did his fingers go inside of you? I was horrified by the question. The bishop told me I couldn't take the sacrament for a month, which meant I couldn't partake of the body and blood of Christ during Sunday service, where my parents and everyone else would notice that I wasn't participating like I normally did. Next, the bishop told me to read a book called The Miracle of Forgiveness, which was written by a former president of our church. I wanted to be right with God, and I was raised to believe the bishop had absolute authority over me. So I followed his instructions and read the book. That book changed my view of myself and sexuality forever. The book's message was that sexual purity, which the author calls your virtue, is worth more than your life, and you should be willing to die before you lose any part of your virtue. That premarital sex is the sin next to murder. I had barely had any sexual experiences at all, but after this experience with the bishop and reading The Miracle of Forgiveness, I felt worthless, like damaged goods. Throughout my teens, if I had any of the normal physical contact that teenagers do, I felt unlovable and unclean. I was taught that it would have been better for me to die than to be impure. My parents' marriage was toxic to be around. My mother was constantly gaslit and controlled by my father. One morning as a 13-year-old, I walked in to see my dad screaming over my mother, who was crying into her arms on the kitchen counter. They didn't even notice I was there. Too high on their emotions to be distracted. I quietly got my six-year-old brother ready for the day and walked him to school. My parents seemed to hate each other, but continued to be fine living in this hostile silence day and night. My dad's absence and rage grew even more over the years, and I knew I had to get out of the house. I remember thinking to myself at 14, if I don't get out of here, I will end up on drugs or pregnant. I was in so much emotional pain, I knew I would turn to self-harming behaviors. I graduated early from high school to escape the house and go to a church-owned college. I chose a major based on the life advice my dad always repeated to me that I should choose a field of study that would attract a man to marry me. It was deeply ingrained in me that if a woman was too powerful, like if she were in academia or finance, a man would not be interested in her. So I choose to study interior design, a feminine career that was more likely to attract a man than an employable skill set like business would be. I had no expectations that I could ever have a career or even a serious job to earn money for myself. At age 17, I believed the only purpose of going to college was to find someone who wanted to marry me. The church college community emphasized that once a woman was older than 22, she was a old maid, a sad spinster. I felt completely, 100% incapable of taking care of myself financially in the future. I met my future ex-husband when I was 19, and he was 25. I'll call him John. He started talking about getting married about three months after we started dating. To me, it felt way too fast, but I was afraid if I tried to delay, I would lose my only chance to get married. By then, I had started to dream about living in New York City and getting a master's degree. But I was so afraid of becoming an unmarried spinster that I believed I was lucky that he was interested in marrying me at all. Something happened when I first met John that should have alerted me that he had a dangerous temper. My roommate 
had a new moped, so the three of us all jumped on to go for a ride. A police officer immediately pulled us over. None of us had helmets on, and there were three of us on a scooter. Clearly, we were in the wrong. As soon as the driver ran home to get his license, John started screaming and yelling at the police officer. He was totally out of line and out of control. I was so confused and scared. The police officer was just giving us a ticket. I remember knowing that this was a red flag, but then I immediately talked myself out of it, thinking, John must have had a really hard week. Maybe he's exhausted. Everybody has bad days. But it's almost like I knew I was talking myself out of it. Deep down, I knew this wasn't a normal way for a person to respond to getting a well-deserved traffic ticket. The truth is, he acted exactly like my father would have. It was so confusing because John really came across as such a quiet, gentle person, and I wanted to believe that a man could be gentle. I put that experience in a box and buried it deep down inside me. In order to get married in my religion's most holy place, the temple, which is the expectation for every respectable member, I had to pass another interview with my bishop. This was a different bishop, in a different city, and he didn't know me at all. I had to submit to a long list of questions so he could determine if I was, quote, worthy to enter the temple. I was 20 years old. The bishop asked me, is there anything you haven't told your church leaders that you need to repent of? I said, well, I masturbated when I was 18, and I felt so embarrassed that I had to talk about this with some old guy I didn't even know. The bishop's follow-up question was, did you orgasm? I answered that I didn't really know if I orgasmed. I actually didn't know. I didn't know anything about sex. The bishop replied, you're lying. He became angry with me and wouldn't let me end the conversation until I, quote, told the truth. I started to doubt myself and wonder, was I lying? Did I know if I had an orgasm the first time I ever masturbated? No, I actually didn't know. He was so angry with me. He wasn't going to give the permission I needed to enter the temple and get married in the acceptable Mormon way. It was humiliating. I had to go to his superior, the stake president, and beg for mercy. Because if I didn't get these two men's permission, that meant no temple marriage, aka family and community shame forever. This church leader was kinder to me. His voice and demeanor was soft. He told me that God loved me and gave me the approval I needed. My parents were thrilled when we got married, even though I had just turned 20. They loved John, especially my mom. He was tall, dark, and handsome, a charming college athlete. He'd even served a church mission for two years. Early on, John and I had some arguments about gender roles. At a family dinner, John's father said it was a proven fact that boys are smarter than girls, and he said this in front of his own granddaughter. At church, while talking to John and his friend who had also just married a 19-year-old, his father said, way to go, boys. Marry them young so you can train them right. In front of me and the other wife. I challenged both these assertions to John later in private, and John defended his father. He became so overwhelmed by this disagreement that he got down on his knees, balled up his fists, and said he couldn't tolerate the discomfort he felt. He threatened to hurt himself if I didn't stop talking about it. Looking back, I see this was the first time he manipulated my behavior with threats. The first threat he made was that he would hurt himself, and it scared me into greater submission. After a year, John was pushing me to start having kids. I didn't feel ready. I thought it was too soon, but I didn't have a good explanation for why I wanted to wait to have kids. I didn't have lofty career goals or work I wanted to do. I was good at interior design, but I wasn't passionately interested in the industry, and I wanted to make them happy. So I agreed. Three weeks after I graduated from college with a degree in interior design, my first child was born. The first true love of my life. We had just moved to a new city, and I didn't know anyone. A few sleepless nights after our child was born, I was breastfeeding and I could tell the baby needed a new diaper. I woke John to ask him for help. He became enraged and started screaming at me. I was terrified. It was as if 
Having a newborn in the house triggered everything he had ever been mad about in his entire life. Have you heard the saying that when you give birth to your first child, you also give birth to your first childhood pain? It really felt like I was watching him wake up to his trauma. I still don't know what happened to him in his childhood, but I feel compassion for him. I knew he was harmed in some way. All I knew then is that he had a lot of rage and that it was directed at me. It was like there was a monster in the house, but just at night. And he always told me he didn't remember it in the morning. That's when the domestic abuse in my marriage truly started. And it never really stopped. The situation was more complicated because John had been using porn frequently for many years without my knowledge, which is forbidden in Mormonism. He had a meeting with the bishop about it and made a plan to stop in order to be right with God. The physical abuse started almost immediately after he stopped viewing porn. I have always thought of this stage as him being similar to a dry drunk. He had stopped using porn as a coping mechanism to regulate his emotions, so now he was angry during the day too and became much more volatile. When we met with the bishop together about his porn use, the bishop's advice was to keep praying and read the scriptures together. The physical abuse started with small things and grew quickly. In a matter of six months, I was the frog who found herself in boiling water. At first, he trapped me in the bathroom with his body. He wouldn't let me leave. He threw a plastic chair across the family room. He threw a glass vase of flowers across the dining room and it shattered against the wall. He yelled, I hope you burn in hell, you f- During a car ride with our child, he would grab my arm to stop me from getting away and shove me up against the wall with his hands around my throat. He threw me onto the bed. He punched a hole in the bedroom wall. One time I locked him out of the house because he scared me, and he kicked the door in and broke the locks. After each of these, he would apologize, feel ashamed, and turn back into the husband I recognized, the man I fell in love with and we would quickly settle back into our normal life, raising and enjoying our one-year-old. One evening when our first child was 15 months and already asleep for the night, John and I had the tiniest argument about whose turn it was to do the dishes. He got that enraged look in his eye. Anyone who has ever seen it knows what it looks like. As soon as I saw that look, I knew it was not safe to stay in the same space with him. I turned around to leave the kitchen and go outside, and then suddenly felt myself flying back down the back steps. My husband had kicked me from behind, so hard that my body flew through our small kitchen and laundry room, and I landed on the ground outside. I locked myself in the car. I called my mom and told her what happened, and I remember what she asked. Has he ever done anything like this before? And I said, well, no, he's never kicked me before. My mom didn't make any huge deal about it. I'm still disappointed about that conversation, but in her defense, she too had made a similar phone call as a young mother to her parents and received, this is how marriage works. Work it out. And without saying those exact words, that's what she told me to do too. When I got off the phone with her, I felt so hopeless, trapped, and scared. I felt there were no options for me to do or change anything. I thought about going inside to get my child who was still breastfeeding and taking him to stay at an acquaintance house around the corner, but that felt too dangerous. I considered calling the police, but I thought, if John goes to jail, how will I pay the rent and take care of my child? I ran through all of these scenarios in my mind, but none of them seemed possible. We were living paycheck to paycheck, and when you're poor, your options get much smaller. So I waited until I knew John was asleep and went back into the house. I didn't tell anyone other than my mom. It didn't occur to me to ask my church community for help. If I told someone, I would have to admit that my husband was abusing me. And I couldn't admit that yet. A few days after John kicked me, I took our child and went to my parents' house. I told him it was just a normal visit. I didn't want to trigger his anger. I was too afraid of what he would do. I think I hoped someone would see what was happening and they would help me. While I was at my parents' house, John called to convince me that everything was okay, that he was meeting with the bishop and that everything was all right now. He was doing so much better. If you can believe it, I went back to John. Our marriage was uncomfortable and out of balance, but better. I thought, 
maybe having another baby will bring our family closer together. I got pregnant again, and things were calmer for a while. Then, when I was six months pregnant, John raped me. I want to say something now about rape before I go any further, especially in the context of marriage and all other relationships. The legal definition of the word rape is, quote, the penetration, no matter how slight, of the vagina or anus with any body part or object, or oral penetration by a sex organ of another person without the consent of the victim. Rape is the same between married people or people in romantic relationships as it would be between people on their first date or a stranger in the park at night. It's illegal to rape one spouse, or in other words, it's illegal to force one spouse into a sex act without consent in every state in the United States. But this is a recent legal development. Nebraska was the first state to make rape between spouses absolutely illegal in 1975. The first trial in the U.S. to convict someone who raped his spouse while they were married was in 1978, just a few years before I was born. It wasn't until the mid-1990s that rape between spouses was illegal in all 50 states. Even in my generation, many people still believe the archaic idea that it can't be rape if the perpetrator and the victim are married. I assure you, John raped me while we were married. I was six months pregnant with my second child, and I had been very sick with extended nausea from pregnancy. We were on a vacation with John's family, staying in a joint hotel, and his parents and siblings were staying in the rooms adjacent to ours. I was nauseated and miserable, so I got in the shower to see if it would make me feel any better, but it didn't. I was getting out of the shower and wrapping the towel around me when John started initiating sex. I said, no, I feel really sick. I moved past him and barely made it to the bed. I was so sick I couldn't even put on pajamas. I lay on my side with the towel around me, put the covers over me, and just wanted to sleep off the sickness. I was trying to wish myself to sleep. John got into the bed behind me. For a moment, I thought he was coming to comfort me. Suddenly, I realized he was naked, and instantly, he pushed himself into me. I was completely in shock. Tears started streaming down my face. He was behind me and couldn't see my face at all. I was frozen. I didn't push him away or scream stop. It's so complicated, and it's so simple. My body couldn't process how the person I was supposed to trust the most in the world was suddenly violating me. Not only was my husband abusing me again, in a place where I had no support, while I was weak with nausea of pregnancy, but I had had a six-month-old baby inside me. There were so many parts of me that activated to just protect myself from further harm. This was not a situation in which my husband was being a lazy lover and doing little to seduce me when I wasn't exactly in the mood. This was an experience in which my husband wanted to have sex. I said no, and then within minutes, he put his penis inside me. I crawled off the bed back into the bathroom, and as I locked myself inside, I knew what I had just experienced was rape. I sat on the floor and I went through all the possible scenarios. What would happen if I called the police? Who would come and get me? What would happen to my two-year-old child in the hotel room? I didn't have any family in town. I had another big problem. I didn't have unfettered access to my own money. The only credit card I had was a joint account with my husband. By that time, I had run through all the possible actions in my head. It was an hour later and my phone was in the main living room with everyone, and I hadn't come to any conclusions that seemed plausible to me. So I just walked out of the bathroom and went to sleep. We never talked about it again. I learned to bury these traumatic experiences and tried to forget that it happened. It was too painful to acknowledge. Some of you might be thinking, the story is so extreme. John must be an outlier. I wish that were true. John once said to me that once we got married, he believed that he owned my body. How could a church-going man living in a liberal state believe that my body was his property to do whatever he wanted to do with it? I gave birth to our second child three months after the rape. 
and had a very traumatic birth experience. I could barely walk and was dependent on John to carry me up and down the stairs in our two-story apartment. About a week after the second birth, he talked to me again in that rage-filled way, and instantly I thought, I can't believe I just had another baby, and I'm back in this same situation. I'm going to be abused again, and now I have two children to take care of and protect. Family members came to help and support me during early postpartum, but I couldn't bring myself to tell them about the danger. John's temper got worse. John and I took our new baby and toddler on a road trip to stay a few days with some of his friends, a husband and wife. During the drive, we got into an argument and John yelled at me, if you don't stop talking, I'm going to crash this car into the median. We were going 80 miles an hour on the highway. My life and the lives of my babies were clearly in danger, and that must have done something to me. When we got to our destination, I found some alone time with the woman we were visiting and dispassionately told her that John had kicked me once during an argument. I wasn't even close to her, but I just had to tell someone. She was shocked. I minimized the event, but she said over and over, it's not okay for John to physically abuse you. The next day, she sat down with me again and said, this is really serious. And I could hear the concern and panic in her voice. She said, you need to talk to your church leader and tell them what happened. What was different about this woman? How did she know to tell me that John's behavior was abuse? The answer, she worked at a battered women's shelter in college. She knew something about domestic abuse. Not many people know anything about it. The reason I am okay today is because of that woman who was knowledgeable and brave enough to talk straight to me and follow up. I believe that one interaction saved my life. I went home and told the stake president that John kicked me. Both John and I went to his office, but had separate interviews. This church leader, a somber but tender-hearted cowboy type, said, That is absolutely wrong. Your husband should never hit anyone. He took John's temple recommend away, which meant that he wouldn't be allowed to enter the temple, and was a symbol that he had committed a serious offense. I said, Should I go to my parents? Do you think that's the right thing to do? I feel like I'm giving up on my marriage. The stake president said, that could be a good thing to do, possibly. The only direct advice he gave me was to listen to uplifting music. He never followed up with me, and then he left the leadership position soon after. I finally wanted to tell my brothers and sisters. I remember sitting on the kitchen floor with a phone in my hand and having to make the decision. Am I going to blow up my life, or am I going to keep living in denial? I can't tell my family and then go back to living in the same mental space as before. It was such a scary moment and there was no turning back. My family took a yearly trip to a lake, but since I had just given birth a few weeks earlier, I didn't go. There was no service at the lake, so I couldn't reach anyone until Sunday night. As soon as I reached my brother, I was so worried about how it would affect them. I was reassuring him that everything was going to be okay. He was shocked and immediately called my sister, who booked a flight. She met my husband at the airport, who was on his way back from a work trip, and told him he was not welcome to come back to the house, and that what he was doing was unacceptable. This had to have been so uncomfortable for her since John was friendly with all of my siblings. My sister stayed for a week and fed and took care of the kids, and then called the friend of my husband's, who had first helped me, and she flew in for the next week and got me on the airplane to my parents' house. Are you wondering why in the world I went back to the home that I had years earlier escaped from? The truth is I didn't want to go. My family had convinced me. But where else was I to go? I knew my mom could help the kids since she didn't work. And at this point, my entire family lacked awareness of the complex domestic violence that we had all grown up in. I left John and stayed with my parents that summer. The first thing my dad did was pull me into my childhood bedroom and tell me to think about the part I played in my marriage conflict. I was in the most vulnerable state I had ever been in, and the first thing my father did was ask me to take responsibility for being abused. And I actually listened to him at first. I remember looking up at him and agreeing, still trying to be a good daughter and wanting a father's advice. It still hurts me to this day that he did that. I was depressed, and it was hard to take care of my two small children who were now three months and three years old. I read tons of books to educate myself and slept a lot. My mom and sister-in-law took good care of the three of us. 
I needed space away from John to really understand what was happening, the dynamics, the manipulation, the enmeshment. Once I was away from him, I was able to see things clearly, and I asked him to move out of our apartment for good. But even though we were separated, he continued physically and verbally intimidating me and abusing me, and often tried to get into my locked bedroom at night when he came over to tuck the kids into bed. Once when we argued, John held our only months-old baby out in front of him, threatening to drop the baby if I didn't stop talking. The first thing I did after separating from John was to make a plan to earn my own money. I started a business, which became very successful. But even after we separated, I found it difficult to decide to divorce because of all of the religious and cultural beliefs I held. I didn't want to destroy an eternal family. I didn't want to ruin my kids' lives. As soon as I came back from my parents' house, I made an appointment with the new stake president to get support and guidance. The new stake president said nothing except that he had experienced abuse in his family. It was very ambiguous, and sometimes I wonder if he hadn't yet processed his own domestic violence history. He certainly wasn't ready to hear about the domestic abuse happening among his church members. He offered me nothing. He didn't say, I'm here to help you. Call the police. Report. Are your kids safe? Do you feel like you're in danger? He treated me like it was normal. Where couples were coming in and saying, my husband hits me, and he just thinks that's part of marriage. There was no shock in him. He seemed emotionless. He didn't take it seriously, and he never followed up. I realized that leaders in my church were not going to help me, and that they prioritized the church membership of my husband and our family unit staying together over the safety of me and my children. I took my kids on vacation to do something fun with them, with friends, and clear my head. John agreed I could take the kids, and I asked him not to come. Once I was there, John showed up at my hotel doorstep, unannounced, and nowhere to stay. So I agreed he could sleep on the couch. In the middle of the night, I woke up and John was on me, in the bed, with his fingers inside of me. I shouted and kicked him off. He mumbled, sorry, and went back to the couch. Again, I ran through all the possible actions I could take. This time, I actually knew the people where I was vacationing. But it was in the middle of the night, and the boys were asleep on the floor next to me. I imagined the police coming, and the boys awake and scared watching their dad be taken away. The next day, I asked to meet with the local stake president in the city, who was the father of a friend, and told him that John had been physically abusive. This stake president told me a man should never lay hands on a woman, and that I deserved a man who treated me better. It was at this moment that I finally knew it was okay to end my eternal marriage. I was still so dependent on the permission of male ecclesiastical authority, but at least I had finally heard what I needed to hear. I immediately filed for divorce. Through all this, I never told anyone that John had raped me. A few years after the divorce, I watched the film Half the Sky. There's a story in the film about teen girls raped by church authorities. The girls know they will be disowned by their families and communities if they tell the truth, but they tell anyway. When I saw that story, it was as if my subconscious brought my history of sexual assault forward, and I felt suicidal. I was shaking and nauseated all the time. I knew that I was raped. I knew that because I was keeping it a secret and my body was revolting. I knew I had to do something about it. My first child turned eight. And in the Mormon church, this is when children are baptized. The baptism ritual itself is usually performed by the child's father, but only if he is considered worthy by his church leader, the bishop, who is the moral authority of the congregation. John wanted to baptize our child, but I couldn't agree to this because he had never been held accountable for raping me. I requested a meeting with the bishop, and this particular bishop I considered a close friend. I said I did not agree that John should baptize our child. He had committed crimes for which he had not been held responsible. And I was thinking of reporting those crimes to the police, including domestic violence and rape. The bishop replied, You don't want to ruin John's life, do you? It was a classic line that people say to victims. Sobbing, I finally told this church leader my experience of both times when John raped me, with John sitting next to me. Then the bishop asked John for his side of the story. Referring to the time John raped me when I was sick and pregnant, John said, She was being really difficult that weekend. I was just trying to be close with her. 
Notice that John described the event to the bishop by detailing his own perception and his desires. John didn't even bother to claim that I gave my consent to that sexual act. The bishop didn't ask either. The bishop accepted that nothing illegal or unethical had happened, and the bishop judged that John had not committed rape. The bishop sent us out the door and gave John permission to baptize our son, and again, did not follow up with me. In total, I met and reported John's abuse to eight men in leadership positions in my church, eight different times. Not a single one of them suggested I file a police report, asked if I needed a safe place to stay, or recommended any domestic violence resources. This is why I have so much rage around this topic. These men were my friends. Their wives were my friends. Their daughters loved me as their Sunday school teacher. These weren't the men in my church whom I didn't like, the ones that had misogynists written across their foreheads. These men actually presented themselves as feminists. My whole life I'd spent around pretty bad men. Finally, I had moved to a progressive part of the country, and I was around men who seemed to really respect women and treat them equally. But in their responses to my abuse, I felt just as ignored as I would have been back home. I decided to report the rape to my local police department. It felt it was the one thing I could do that say I rejected what had happened to me, that what happened to me was wrong. It was the one step I could take to have the truth be officially documented, written down. If I didn't do it, I felt that by staying silent, I was part of the problem, and I couldn't live with being part of the problem anymore. Telling the police was the scariest thing I've ever done in my life, besides leaving John. It was so overwhelming, but I didn't want anyone with me. I thought I had to do it on my own. I was so ashamed of what happened to me. I didn't want another person to know the story. I walked to the police station, and the receptionist flatly told me that to report a sexual assault, I had to pick up an old-fashioned corded phone on the wall and tell them everything. I looked over. And in the middle of a waiting room, full of strangers, was a bright red landline phone. An officer saw me fiddling with the phone and invited me into his private office. A couple of officers discussed in front of me which one of them would take my statement. One officer said, I'm a woman. I can take it. It said online to ask for an advocate at the police station, so I did. They said they would try to accommodate my request, but that I would have to wait until one was available because the advocate covered several stations. I waited for more than an hour. And then they told me they still didn't know when the advocate could come. I said, I just want to get this over with. The officer told me that her normal job was to write traffic tickets to high school students on bikes for not stopping at the stop sign near their school. She was writing haphazardly on a piece of printer paper. Apparently there was no protocol for taking my statement, and she wasn't trained to do so. She asked why I'd come, and I said to report a rape. I was raped by my ex-husband while we were married. As I gave my statement, she asked, so you were married at the time, seven different times. She said many times that I didn't have a case. She kept saying that she and her own husband wouldn't necessarily ask each other verbally when they had sex. She asked me a bunch of times what time it was when it happened. I said I could not remember what time it was. It was five years ago. I could see her right in the corner of her paper, has no idea, and underline it three times. She said, so, you were trying to go to sleep, and you don't know how long it was between getting out of the shower and when he got in bed, so it could have been two sort of separate events, right? You said no after the shower, but you didn't say no in the bed. Unfortunately, I had watched too many episodes of Law & Order Special Victims Unit and was expecting an Olivia Benson-type officer to tell me that marital rape was real, that it wasn't my fault, and that what happened to me was a crime. The whole experience of reporting sexual assault at the police station was a dumpster fire. They told me that since the rape events hadn't occurred in my home county, I was in hotel rooms traveling both times, that those county police departments would have to follow up. I also reported all the other physical abuse kicking me so hard I flew through a room, kicking the door in, grabbing my arm and my throat, pushing me onto a bed, throwing furniture, punching a hole in the wall, all of it. I told them I wanted to press charges, but they said they would forward it to a district attorney's office. No one ever followed up with me. As direct results of abuse by John, I was diagnosed with anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, body dysmorphic disorder, 
had suicidal ideation, and have chronic digestive and chronic fatigue syndromes. I spent over $150,000, my entire savings, on legal bills and therapy for me and my children. My work performance has been deeply affected by all of my physical symptoms, as well as the time needed to go to court hearings, attorney meetings, and therapy appointments. So that's what happened after I was raped by my husband. I didn't get legal justice. I didn't get reparations. I didn't get pastoral care from my church. But I finally told my truth. Sadly, domestic violence is one of the world's best-kept secrets. It affects every socioeconomic group, race, and country. It's a horrific truth to confront, but domestic violence is happening all around us, all the time, acted out in secret, and protected by the belief that patriarchy comes from God, or that it is necessary for preserving the social order. Breaking down patriarchy is the only way to end domestic violence. As I finish typing this, I'm sitting at the kitchen table next to my mom. She's in town visiting to help with all the extra things that pile up from being a single mom. We're in an apartment that I pay for on my own, in a city I'm completely in love with. I have a business that I feel passionate about, and I have a freedom and independence I never knew was possible. Once I left John, there was a domino effect in my family. My mom and sister both got divorced the same year I did. Everyone in my family, with the exception of my father, continues to heal from our generational trauma working towards a safer and healthier place for our children to grow. I have made peace with my father and the limitations he has. Although he is not safe to have a relationship with currently, I try to imagine him as a person he would have been without his severe childhood abuse. I have learned that I can have compassion for him, as well as my ex-husband, while at the same time holding strong boundaries to protect myself from them. I want my story to be some help to all of you. You can find a way out of an abusive relationship. You can be the person who walks beside an abuse survivor. The patriarchal system has built a thousand barriers in your path to try to maintain the status quo, but it's possible to resist the patriarchal system. But you have to educate yourself. And that's what this podcast is all about. Thank you for being here to witness my story. We are so grateful to our anonymous contributor and to the amazing Malia Morris for bringing this story to light. We cannot afford to continue keeping domestic violence a secret. It is real, it is criminal, and it can be a symptom of patriarchy, which is a reality that we need to confront head on. As an epilogue to this story, I'd like to share a few final words that were actually written by our anonymous contributor. In addition to her personal story, she wanted to share some takeaways, and these are really, really important, so I am honored to share them with you. She says, Are any thoughts or feelings coming up as you listen to my story? You might be asking yourself, is that event that happened to me in the past actually rape? That event I've tried to forget? That time when I felt violated? It can't be. I've never attached that scary word to it before. If you were forced to participate in sex and you did not agree to it, that event meets the legal definition of rape. It's a crime, even if you couldn't bring yourself to call it rape. It's a felony. Or maybe you're thinking, did I commit rape? Did I actually do something wrong, but I didn't understand that I was committing a crime? Did I assume someone wanted or agreed to have sex with me and I went ahead but that person didn't or couldn't clearly provide consent? It's a scary thought, isn't it? It's so scary our minds resist even allowing the thought to surface to our consciousness. Did you ever rape someone when you assumed that it was your right to have sex with that person just because you wanted to or because you were married and you never realized it was rape? These are good questions you're asking. If you did anything sexual with another person without their explicit, free, sober consent, that event meets the legal definition of rape. I'm emphasizing this point because it is very human to resist acknowledging that we have experienced or perpetrated rape. There is established research that the human brain will go to extreme lengths to avoid calling a sexual assault experience what it actually legally is. My story may make you question your own experiences, and that's hard to do. 
If you want to break down patriarchy, think about it and be as honest with yourself as possible. I want to share just two facts available in the United States National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey. First, one in four women and one in nine men experience severe intimate partner violence with impacts that include injury, fearfulness, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and suicidal ideation. Second, one in 10 women have been raped by an intimate partner. I'm going to repeat that one more time to be sure it really sinks in. One in 10 women have been raped by an intimate partner, and that's in the United States. In that survey, data was unavailable for genderqueer people or men, and they deserve to be counted. Whatever church, country, community, or family you're in, don't assume those numbers don't apply to your group. Those crimes are going to be just this common among the people you know. According to the United Nations, across the world, about four women a day are killed by an intimate partner. One girl or woman is killed every 11 minutes by someone in her family. 55% of all murders of women are by an intimate partner or a family member. In the U.S. alone, the cost of intimate partner violence is $3.1 trillion from medical costs, loss of productivity from victims and perpetrators, criminal justice fees, and property loss or damage. For each woman, the lifetime economic cost of this abuse is $103,767. At some point in your life, you will have an experience in which the thought crosses your mind. Is the person in front of me being abused and in need of help? In that moment, try to remember these do's and don'ts. This is my best advice from my heart. 1. Don't be afraid you will insult the person by voicing your concern. The person being abused is already ashamed of what is happening to her. You might touch that shame no matter how careful you are, and there might be a reaction to your concern. But you can never go wrong with the message, the way you are being mistreated is not normal and it is not acceptable. You deserve better. I will help you. Somehow we'll think of a way. 2. Believe the person who is disclosing abuse. Even my best friend could not imagine John doing any of the things I told her. Abusers are often very good at keeping their abusive behavior hidden behind closed doors. 3. Don't blame the victim. Say this, I believe you. This isn't your fault. You don't deserve this. 4. Learn who the victim looks to as their moral or spiritual authority and do what you can to secure their support. 5. If the victim is financially dependent on their abuser, reassure them that they can become financially independent. Help them believe it. It is possible. 6. Remember that abuse often escalates. In many cases, abuse begins with psychological manipulation and progresses to verbal abuse to physical and sexual abuse. If a partner demonstrates any abusive behavior, even once, the abuse is likely to progress if there is not an effective intervention. An effective intervention requires legitimate professionals who specialize in domestic abuse. If someone discloses even one disturbing event in the relationship, take it very seriously. 7. Follow up, follow up, follow up. 8. Support the victim however you can. One friend offered me a house key and said day or night I was welcome to come to her house. She also helped me have a safety plan with a folder of important documents like copies of social security cards and passports. One friend would bring food and clean my house. Another friend watched my kids while I went to court hearings and lawyer meetings. 9. Respect their choices. Abuse erodes and sometimes destroys one's sense of self, so they need to find a way to trust themselves again by making their own decisions. 10. Let them know that shelters offer more resources than just a place to sleep. I went to one that had a free legal expert and former cops to help with security issues. The idea of going to a shelter was so overwhelming to me, so if you can, do as much research for them as possible. 11. 
recommend that they open their own checking account and P.O. box and leave money, a set of keys, copies of important documents, and extra clothes and medicine at a trusted friend's house. 12. Suggest that they bring an advocate with them whenever they report abuse, whether it be to the police, a church leader, or to tell family. If you serve in a pastoral role, I have four pieces of advice. 1. You are responsible to educate yourself about all forms of abuse and domestic violence, especially child and spousal abuse. Educate yourself about all the relevant laws in your area and make relationships with the local groups and nonprofits who assist with domestic violence. Nothing you do will have a greater impact on those you serve than how you respond to cases of abuse. Two, you are responsible for using your position of authority to prevent abuse. Church leaders, your first priority must always be the safety of the victims, not the saving of the sinner's soul or keeping the family together. Three, you are responsible to report cases of abuse to the proper legal authorities. Four, do not recommend couples therapy in cases of abuse. Abuse is not a couple's issue. It is an abuser's issue. Thank you again so much for listening to my story and to these takeaways that I learned from this experience. So listeners, this concludes today's episode. And I'd just like to say again how grateful I am to all of you still listening. I know that stories like this can be hard to hear and can leave us feeling gutted. And I'm just grateful to all of you for opening yourself up to the truth, even when it would be easier to turn away. As our contributor's story demonstrated, when people have knowledge of abuse, of what it looks like, of what can be done, then we can equip ourselves to be better supports for one another, potentially even life-saving supports. Finally, I'd like to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Olibest for our social media. Make sure you tune in again next week when our guest Rachel Greenlee will be taking us on a tour of Icelandic feminism, including interviews, unpacking Scandinavian patriarchy, and a telling exploration of Iceland's history and attitudes toward gender relations. All this next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Breaking Down Patriarchy.